guest today is Joel Malkoff, a contemporary circus artist living in Montreal and a 27-year-old grown unschooler and someone who I've known for quite a long time. Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Blake, for having me. I'm very happy to be here talking with you. It's always nice. You ran away to join the circus. Is that hyperbole? Am I am I being overly dramatic when I say this? You're an unschooler who who literally did what some unschooling parents fear, which is you ran away to join the circus. Yes, I I I, I embody that that deep fear that most um, most unschooling parents have, which their their kid will become successful in something they love. Yes, <laughs> but <laughs> um, no, I I did I did essentially um, I did a lot of other things before that too. It's it's in terms of like kind of young adult uh, living, you know, it is what we kind of traditionally in culture refer to as like, you know, post high school age, you know, around 18 or so. But uh, yeah, when I was 21, I was working for you actually with a, in an unschool adventures trip, the adventure semester in Colorado. And in some of my free time, I was thinking and researching about what I wanted to do next. And I was like, man, I really, uh, I really want to engage my physical body more and my artistic sensibilities. Uh, I feel like I had a lot of potential in this that I just hadn't been using since I had been doing gymnastics a long time ago. And I looked into this amazing school uh, in Montreal and decided I was going to do the audition. And uh, they accepted me at 22 years old. And I, I did four years of school there. And uh, yeah. To be clear, that's... this was not a regular school. This was a circus school. This is uh, in French, it's called L'École Nationale du Cirque, which is the National Circus School of Montreal. Um, and yeah, it's like, the, it's like the Harvard of contemporary circus schools. <laughs> it's right across the street uh, from Cirque du Soleil, uh, the headquarters of Cirque du Soleil. Um, like the global headquarters of Cirque du Soleil? The global headquarters are, are located directly across the street. That's, that's right. Is Montreal some um, sort of circus hotspot? It is. It is, the, it is the, you could say it's a world hotspot for sure. And it's, it's definitely North America's premier location for huh. the creation of, of contemporary circus performances, but also contemporary circus education. Uh, there's also a lot of government funding here to get small companies started. There's lots of social circus programs. Uh, and where the school is located, um, kind of in the same stretch of the city on the Northeast side of Montreal, uh, there's the school, there's the Cirque du Soleil headquarters, and then there's a location uh, called the Tohu, which is a big performance center, uh, like the most amazing circus theater I've ever seen um, that has a lot of social programs. They do a lot also to reinvest in the, the local neighborhoods, uh, and they have urban farming programs and all sorts of cool stuff that's happening around there, too. Huh. Okay. Um, so we're kind of in like the mecca of contemporary circus in North America here. So I'm getting a feeling that kind of how Harvard and Yale feed graduates into uh, you know, McKinsey Consulting, for example. The National Circus School of Montreal is a feeder into the, the upper echelons of, is circus even the right word here? Like you describe yourself as a contemporary circus artist, but the word circus, you know, makes me think of uh, Ringling Brothers and Barnum right. and Bailey. And, and so how do I even say, like it, it may propel you into the upper echelons of, of what? What is this world that you're in? It's a great question. And I think just to touch on, on the language really quick um, is you know, for people from the United States, especially uh, our image of circus is, is you know, kind of deep in the culture resembles this Barnum and Bailey's kind of style thing where it's uh, you're using animals and you're jumping through rings of fire and it's about creating a big buildup of energy and then you do a big trick. And uh, contemporary circus, I just say this because it's a way of sort of insinuating that this is a, it's, it's in the same world maybe as, as contemporary dance uh, or, or contemporary music where uh, we're taking more modern themes and artistic sensibilities um, such as veganism, no, uh, but, <laughs> but thing, things, that, things that are, that are, are you know, are inspired by, by more of a modern understanding of art and expression. Um, so we use acrobatic language and circus apparatuses to uh, tell stories and evoke emotion. And uh, that's why I use the word contemporary. Uh, it's just to, especially for you know American listeners or people from the United States listening to insinuate that this, this world is not confined to that one uh, idea of what circus is. Um, 
And so like the Cirque du Soleil, the Cirque du Soleil, the Cirque is the word for circus in French and it has a different connotation in France or in Quebec because there's been more government uh, support of it and it's considered an, uh, one of the fine arts kind of in those, in those two areas of the world. Huh. So there's a, lot more, uh, there's a lot more funding for it. There's a lot more small um, kind of avant-garde shows happening that are using acrobatic language to, as a form of expression. And it's a really cool world to be a part of and you're really permitted to use a lot of different forms of art in one, under one roof, basically. Um, so, you know, everything from live music to contemporary dance and uh, martial arts and gymnastics and all kinds of things are permitted uh, in even the kind of abstract world of performance art uh, uh, are all, uh, you know, performance theater and things like this are all sort of in a big melting pot in the circus world mm. right now, especially in France and also in, in Quebec. So I get the feeling um, so, that if I walk down the street in Montreal, which I've never visited before, uh, I will just be regaled by circus performers at every corner. A, a <laughs> you, troop here, in the a troop there. In the summertime, you 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 might be there. It depends on what street you're on, of course. And the arts in general here are really like celebrated. And, and something I love about Montreal is that uh, imagine if you you took. Uh, the United States, right? And you took something like New York, Los Angeles, uh, and Nashville and Austin and sort of smushed them into one uh, city. Um, you know, in, in Quebec, this is the, in Montreal is the cultural hub for um, all of their, you know, all of their art forms and all of their industry, basically. Um, and what that means is there's also a very distinct culture of French speaking. Uh, people here who have their own sort of way of communicating and uh, their own cultural identification. So that means that just in this one city, you get, you know, high level uh, film studios and you get high level music studios and you get people who are, uh, you know, really high level in almost everything existing in one small city, hmm, like uh, relatively small city, kind of like New York, but it's, there's about 2.5 million people in like the metro area here. So it's much smaller than New York, but you get a lot of diversity and a lot of uh, accessibility to different industries and different artistic fields and mm. so if you're walking around here in the summer for instance you, you would you know you would be in the jazz festival one minute uh with people like bobby mcferrin performing and then the next second you know you go a few streets over and you'd be in the middle of the circus festival uh you go down to the old port you'd see you know circus Soleil opening their new show with, under a big tent there'd be uh, there's a, actually a huge fireworks festival here too like the sort of like global uh, awards for firework display development are in Montreal also and in this area. Like there's a lots of investment in the arts here. So you wouldn't just see lots of circus if you're walking around here, you might bump into many other types of art uh, uh, on your way as well. Hmm. So you've convinced me to visit Montreal. Well done. It's a great city, especially uh, in the summer. Come in, in the, the summer. summer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going in the winter. <laughs> unless you, oh, no. I'm unless you love the snow. This. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you are not Canadian. You're from the US. Uh, you had to learn French. We'll, we'll talk about your, your backstory in a moment. I want to stay on the theme of uh, circus and what it's like to, to be a contemporary circus artist right now. I have your, your CV uh, up in front of me here. And uh, apparently what you specialized in at the National Circus School of Montreal included tight wire, a minor in parkour-acro-dance, uh, training in ballet, contemporary dance, trampoline, floor acrobatics, power track, whatever that is, partner acrobatics, pyramids, handstands, flexibility, French as a second language, English writing, philosophy, history of circus arts, anatomy, career management, marketing, and basic rigging. That's a lot, Joel. You yes. fit that all into four years. Yes, yes. Um, so the way the school is structured is it's uh, sort of like an associate's degree program in the States. It's not quite the same, but it's similar. Uh, it's called a CEGEP in, in Quebec. And uh, so you do your academics at night, uh, and then which can include theoretic classes on rigging or on circus history, um, philosophy, writing, uh, and things like this. And then during the day, you're doing your, your physical training. Uh, so Normally you're in the school for about 12 hours a day, uh, eight to 12 hours a day, depending on the day. Uh, so it's an intensive program. Uh, you spend at least 10 hours a week on your speciality, uh, which for me was tight wire. And then you spend you know, another 20 hours or more of physical training on the complementary splints uh, for me, which is trampoline and contemporary dance and all those other things you mentioned. Um, and yeah, so we, it's a really fantastic intensive program. 
that tries to cover a lot of bases and also prepare you for like not just the physical side of doing circus, but how to market yourself, how to, uh, mm. you know, how to survive as a kind of in a way a little entrepreneur inside of this this field because mm -hmm. you have you might have your own individual act that is different than everybody else's and you have to try to sell it and entice companies or festivals to hire you and yeah so walk us through you, you told us that you do physical stuff during the day and more ab abstract or academic stuff in the evenings but like walk me through uh, an average intense you know full day uh, when you were in the, the Harvard of, of circus. Okay. Um, let's see here. Let's see if I can. Like what time would you wake I'll pick, up? I'll, I'll, I'll pick my, I'll pick my, like one of my more intense days. Okay. Um, so wake up at six, six thirty. make breakfast, make sure it's a balanced meal, drink a lot of water, have a cup or two of coffee, uh, walk in the freezing snow to my school, uh, which takes about, you know, 10 or 20 minutes, depending on where you're living uh, around here, get into school, just as they're turning on the lights, uh, go into the main hall, uh, after I've gone to the locker room, and, you know, dropped off my stuff, and proceed to uh, put up two tight wires in like a kind of a V formation, because uh, that was my my number, I was working on two tight wires involved. Uh, so I rig up all that stuff. And I'm, I'm tensioning them with like industrial um, uh, cable pullers and everything, putting my mats where I need them. Um, hopefully all that's completed by um, 8.30 when my coach arrives. Uh, then you have two hours of tight wire, uh, working on technique and working on your number. And that can be everything from like musicality to storytelling inside the number to uh, working on a new technique uh, kind of all over the place. Then from there, uh, you might get a 20 minute break to uh, eat a little snack. And then uh, there'd be an hour long class of trampoline followed by an hour long class of um, flexibility, for instance, you eat your lunch, finish lunch, you would have um, maybe an hour of acrobatics and then an hour and a half of dance. So now you're you know, about what, 4 p.m. or something, get a little break and then you go into your night classes for maybe three hours of philosophy. Uh, and you're usually out of the, the school by eight or 9 p.m. Oh um, my gosh. Back home. Yeah, then you're back home at, uh, you know, between nine and 10 sometimes. You're going to eat some dinner with your roommates uh, and clean yourself up and prepare your lunch for the next day and go to sleep and get ready to do it again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Was that and, uh, five days a week like that or more? Five, five days a week. And then I worked on the weekends too. So it was a pretty full schedule. Yeah. Joel, did you have a social life? Did you have a personal life during this time? Mm -hmm. You do well. I, I was lucky to have some really fantastic roommates that were all at the same school as me, um, and so we were, you know, we'd have our weekends together to talk and hang out. I mean, at school, you're often, you know, with a lot of people you know pretty closely. Actually, it's a really small cohort. You know, your graduating year might be twenty to thirty people, hmm. so you get to know them really well. They, you get to feel pretty close with them. And a lot of the, the end of the year, you do a big creation of a of a show uh, that we do for the public, and so you often are doing a lot of group work with them and. Uh, getting to know those people, you know, in a, in a way that builds a lot of trust. Because if you're doing acrobatic stuff together, you have to make sure you're keeping each other safe. And so the social life uh, kind of can't, comes naturally with uh, being in, inside of this intense program with a bunch of other people in close proximity. And yeah. Hmm. And this was four years, like a yes. full four-year program. Uh, did you have to pay for this? I did. Yeah. Um, but compared to tuition in the United States, it was pretty, it was pretty approachable. Mm. Um, I think for Americans, uh, once you do the conversion rate, it's something like, it's like 7,000 for the whole year. Okay. Uh, that is yeah. highly manageable a, compared to the U.S. It's fantastic. It, I mean, I can pay for my, all my live in Montreal is a pretty cheap city too. Um, they've done a lot of things over the, over the years for like, it, they're kind of consumer protection based or rent, um, holding rent prices steady and things like this so that uh, it's a pretty affordable city for the size and for all of the, the resources that it has. Um, so I could pay for like basically my whole life here, including my school for about the same cost as like just tuition uh, of like a, you know, a larger in-state school. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's really been a great blessing. And it's funny cause here, you know, they're, they're here and in France and, and, and around Europe in general, they're, really habituated to having 
and expensive education. So here, the, the people from Quebec, for instance, pay way less than what the Americans pay, like a fraction of it. And for them, they still think it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're used to having very affordable um, uh, programs like this. So before we go back to talk about your, your early history and, and what led up to this decision, uh, tell us about what you're doing right now. You have something, this is my French, check this out, la quadrature. Um, yeah. You have your own circus troupe now. How are you making ends meet? I think a lot of people might ask, okay, this sounds like a wonderful experience, but yeah, what, how do you actually pay the bills or uh, have a, it's a great sustainable question. future? Yeah. So I'll kind of compare what I've lived compared to what the normal Great. situation would be for a graduate of the school, because we graduated directly into the pandemic. We were, we were two weeks away from doing our final end of year performance where they gather like all of the, you know, our families and all of the, the cohort of school. And then also uh, talent scouts from Cirque du Soleil and all the other companies will come in and watch. Um, we were two weeks out from this and the pandemic happened and they closed everything. So we did kind of four years of preparation to have it be stopped right before the climax. And it was a huge, huge mm-hmm. letdown uh, that I think in a lot of ways, people of my year are still recovering from. And because we, our chance to be seen by the market um, was, was sort of stifled by, by the pandemic in a big way. Mm-hmm. And our school is making up for it. We're going to get a chance to go back and do that performance here at the, the end of August and beginning of September. So that's, that's going to be taken care of, but it's way sort of delayed. Everything is gotten really mixed up due to the pandemic. Um, so the traditional path would be, uh, usually you would, you know, you do your, your school and if you've, if you've been able to excel and, and, and do a good job there, usually, um, one of the larger companies out of Montreal, um, there's three larger companies here. And now there's a couple others that are starting to sort of sneak in on their turf too, but there's three main large companies that include the Cirque du Soleil, uh, Le Cédois de la Main, which is the seven fingers of the hand. It's the name of that company. And then Cirque Aloise. Um, usually those companies will create a new show or they'll be changing casts and they'll pull a fair number of students from the school um, into their new creations or their ongoing creations. And then some students will go you know, make their own company or they might get invited by a company based out of Europe. Um, and you know, most people are kind of within the first few months of graduating have found a pretty, a pretty nice uh, situation. I think yeah, we have like wow. a 90% higher rate out of school because oh, uh, there's, there's more de- yeah it's great there's more there's more demand well the pandemic has sort of put everything in flex a bit but in general there's more demand for high level performers of this type than there are performers so w- most of the time if, if you've been able to uh you know really progress in, in, during your time at school you can find a pretty good a good situation and of course there's biases that come along with this you know there's there's some people who've had a hard time finding jobs because um there, they might be uh, a more, uh, for, for instance, I have, I have there's a, someone I know that uh, is a more, if, if you no, know, I guess does a more feminine act on a on a on trapeze, and but they're a man, and I think they get stereotyped a bit into, you know, some of the larger companies want the more stereotyped, like big strong man kind of mm-hmm. character, and so there's definitely th- things we can do to make that kind of to make the work more accessible for 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 all expressions. Uh, and I do think more of the smaller contemporary companies are, are much better at that. But you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy for everybody. But in general, circus is a pretty open community and um, pretty, like, actually works pretty well as far as the performing arts world goes. Um, and so that's kind of the normal thing. And you would tour with those companies for a couple of years. You sign a contract usually between two and three years long, uh, and then you can sort of you know, once you, if you've done a good job there and they like working with you, it's usually something where you can continue to find, to find work within, within that world. Um, and I know people who've performed or, you know, performing up into their, their late thirties, early forties, um, and still doing pretty high level stuff. And, uh, it can really be a sustainable career and that's sort of the normal path. Sorry, long explanation. That's sort of the normal. No, path. that's great. It's great. Yeah. And, and so, you know, very high percentage of, of people from the school that, that are able to find good work. Um, and same goes for similar schools uh, in France and even in Quebec City, just north of here, there's another school with a similar type of program. And, uh, you know, you, if you can excel in the program, you can usually do pretty well in the job market. Um, now plus, let's talk about in, what you have to deal with. Yeah. So we graduated directly into the pandemic. Um, so that, you know, the performance art world was completely shut down basically all over the world. And um, me and some friends of mine, actually my, my friend Joachim, he's from France, um, he invited me and 
uh, a really good friend of mine, Bobby Cookson, who's from Atlanta, Georgia, actually, um, to uh, start a little collective and start making some stuff together because there is no, none of the big companies will hire anyone. So we were like, well, let's just at least get together and make something. Uh, maybe we can market it. Maybe we can do some, you know, corporate work. Maybe we can get some some work in the in the summer, and we can at least be in this creative mode and keep you know perfecting our work um, until the market is open again. And so, uh, la quadrature is the name, or the, the quadrature, and this is a mathematical form that uh, is how you convert uh, like a square to the same surface with the same surface area to a circle, or vice versa. It's like a you, you perform a, a quadrature to do this. Mm. And the reason that we called it this is I do tight wire, it's my main discipline. So there's that's the line that you draw inside of the mathematical equation to like to, to measure your your surface area. And then you know that the circle represents Bobby. He does sear wheel, which is like this big uh, metal ring that you spin around in and it's really amazing. And then Joachim, uh, he juggles uh, cigar boxes, which are like these, you know, it's, they don't look like real cigar boxes quite, but they're like these small boxes that you could do these really amazing juggling patterns with. So if you combine those three shapes, you get something that looks a lot like a quadrature. So that's why we called it this. Um, and we decided we took a, we, there was an entrepreneurship, uh, like arts entrepreneurship course happening through Zoom that our school was kind of sponsoring uh, to help out a lot of the graduates who were like kind of stuck in this world without any work. Um, so we took this and we developed a business plan and we uh, kept working to create a show. We did a, a crowdfunding campaign. We were able to get enough money to afford the like the basic cost of crea creating the, the first version of the show. Uh, and we just finished last week performing it uh, in the festival here. Uh, so we were able to take it from like us goofing around in the parks last year um, in Montreal, uh, in the middle of the pandemic to actually performing it this year with, uh, with a really wonderful audience and uh, for all of our friends that supported us through it. So, uh, and now we're in the stage of uh, sending out a lot of applications to different festivals all over Europe. And hopefully in 2022, we'll have a lot more full performance schedule with mm. this. Wow. I mean, good job making lemonade out of lemons here. Uh, like, do you feel, I, I'm sure you can compare this to, for example, getting hired by Cirque du Soleil and, and working with that kind of organization. But do you feel like um, you, you did make the most of a bad, of a tough situation that you were able to, to use the skills you developed in the circus school to continue pushing yourself to, to feel like you, your artistic career is moving forward? Yes, I think so. And I, I think something that that really required was a sense of community, uh, especially during the, the pandemic and finding, uh, you can do it with your, you know, within yourself too, if, if you have that kind of, if you're in that position. I was sort of injured and was sort of just thrown for a huge loop uh, when the pandemic hit too. So I think for me, it really was important to have, you know, two good friends of mine to work with and to create community around this mission of continuing to grow our work and expand our, 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 our perspective as artists and to make something special even in this time of like great isolation basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think the school prepared us pretty well to understand how to think about the creation of our work, uh, to develop the techniques we need and this kind of eye and sensibilities we need. But nothing could have really prepared us for um, suddenly having the entire market shut down, right? And so some people tried to do stuff online. Uh, I saw some people go into more like modeling work and doing like photo shoots and video shoots and things like this. And um, but for the most part in Canada, people sort of hunkered down and kind of waited it out for the most part. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think we did the best we could with the situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of what we've been able to do despite the challenges. Yeah. Great. I look forward to seeing you in person performing someday, hey, hopefully soon. We might be in, in Europe uh, in 2022. So performing, uh, maybe even sooner, maybe, but I'll let you know. Uh, I'll pop on you, over. You, that'd be great. Yeah. Germany's not so far <laughs> away from, from France. So uh, let's talk about how you grew up and how you transitioned into this life. Uh, so Tell us, uh, you know, where you're from and the sort of basic educational approach that your family took as you grew up. So I am from Noblesville, Indiana, which is not the most educationally progressive place in the United States. Um, and uh, when I was young, my mom was doing some research on the schooling systems around us and which schools were the best and had the, an approach that she agreed with. And she just kept feeling unsatisfied with what she was reading and discovering. And 
she's a very investigative personality and uh, she kept reading and kept researching and she discovered uh, John Taylor Gatto and uh, Grace Wellen and was reading their books and feeling like, okay, this, this makes sense. This is, this, this is, this is some real talk. So <laughs> what can we do? What are the resources around us that we can engage with to um, follow the philosophy that within a child is uh, a lot of potential to direct themselves and to get in touch with what they love and how they want to connect with the world and use that as your guiding posts. Um, and so I never, by the time I reached you know, school age, normal school age in the United States, um, I think she was pretty decided and kind of convinced my dad to give it a shot to do the homeschooling thing. Um, and they, they, there was no one else really doing it like my family um, back home. Uh, there were some groups that were doing it, but more for like religious reasons, which, you know, no prejudice against this, but it wasn't why we were doing it. Um, so it made it a little bit hard to find a cohort as I was growing up. Uh, and, you know, I was always pretty social, so I didn't, I didn't struggle to have you know, friends and things, but it was definitely strange to be the only person I knew until I was, you know, 15 and went to the not back to school camp. I was the only person I knew that was really doing this this way. Um, in friends your are area, kind of, did, did you have any, any like, pen pals? Did you have any online no friends? One. No one. No one. From no one that I knew. Five that was, to 15. Yeah, no one that I knew that was doing it this way. I had one friend, um, Alex, who uh, his family was uh, kind of more and in, in similar to, I think maybe they started for you know different reasons, like maybe a little more religious, I'm not sure. But you know, by the time he was a bit older, it was kind of similar to what I was doing. So it was, that was, that was one, that was one thing, but it, it still wasn't like knowing people who had grown up and done it or uh, a big community of people. And so, but I, I kind of, I don't think they were calling it unschooling or kind of had, they hadn't, you know, the, the philosophy was not quite the same. So I don't quite include it. Um, yeah. So I mean, essentially until I went to the not back to school camp, I hadn't met anyone who was really doing it this way. But did you have um, friends locally, you know, through activity groups? Oh, yeah. Did you, you said you were social. So did you, did you feel like you had enough socialization opportunities growing up? Absolutely. I mean, I, we were, my house was, our house was the center of, of, of hanging out, like, through all my childhood until I moved away, basically. Like it was where all the neighborhood kids would come and, um, you know, play all summer long and get together and have snowball fights. And okay. And, okay. So you had a good you know, neighborhood was, life. You just didn't know any oh, unschoolers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I didn't know any unschoolers really, but I had, uh, I had friends through gymnastics. I had friends through uh, the art classes I took. I had friends uh, from all around the neighborhood. Uh, and I was pretty naturally someone who would try to gather people together and um, was someone who, who was you know didn't didn't have any real struggle with finding good friends uh thankfully i think uh for one there were a lot of kids my age in the neighborhood that helped out a lot um and also i think i i have uh you know i'm i'm rather i'm kind of a gregarious personality i think that that was you know played in my favor in that mm -hmm. way so uh, let's talk about kind of two phases of your youth, the, the five to 15 phase, and then the, the not back to school camp and beyond era. And so I know you're a person of many interests. Uh, you know, there's the physical stuff, parkour, gymnastics, slacklining. Uh, I know you have the musical side, uh, guitar, songwriting. Uh, what was most uh, important for you? What was most engaging in this five to 15 age range? Hmm. Uh, okay. Let me, let me reflect for a second. It's a big, it's a big, a lot of development goes on between five and 15. Um, I think as a, as a young kid, I think movement was like the first sort of big love I had. Like at six years old, I got my first skateboard and I was essentially skateboarding nonstop all the time uh, once I discovered it. And I, I, I love to move my body and challenge my body. That, that was a big, you know, a big source of energy and, and, and learning for me and like how to challenge myself, how to overcome a challenge, how to direct my energy to create, you know, learning a new trick. And my parents are very supportive and my mom would take me to the skate park all the time. And, uh, you know, I was, I was also naturally doing a lot of, like, I was kind of naturally a researchy person too. Like I was pretty into video games too, starting pretty young, but I wasn't just playing them. I would like go onto all the different websites and read all the reviews and watch all the videos about like all these games that I would never play and try to understand how the critics thought about them, 
how how they were analyzing the material. I've always found that fascinating. So like, uh, I, I, w- I would get into like the the way people would analyze information from a pretty mm. early age as well. I found that really fascinating Not, and would naturally gravitate towards this. Um, I also loved, uh, I was kind of two, two pretty influential, influential things kind of pre-puberty were, um, my mom and dad left the Catholic church when I was like six years old too. Um, and I think especially my mom was really searching a lot for um, kind of meaning outside of the, ch- the church and trying to rediscover spiritualism and rediscover uh, how she wanted to ground her sense of morality and all that kind of stuff. Right. So um, there were a lot of books in the house growing up on like old yoga traditions and all different types of inf- like ways of interpreting religion and philosophy. And um, so I had a lot of, a lot of that kind of thing surrounding me all the time. And I really grew up with my mom openly discussing with me and my dad uh, what she th- was thinking about all that and how that, how that sat with her and what her opinions were. And, um, that was a huge influence on me as well. And I, I found myself thinking a lot about it too and having, trying to critically think about religion and philosophy from a pretty young age as well. And I think that was a big influence as well. Uh, and then I also loved I, kind of anything that took abstract thinking I loved too. Uh, I remember seeing this documentary called uh, What the Bleep Do We Know, which is sort of a primer for the layman for like quantum mechanics. And I was like seven or eight years old, I saw this and it just blew my mind and I loved it. And it never, I, I loved thinking about how like the nature of reality would work. And so subjects around um, understanding how the world really works kind of in a scientific way, but kind of at a more, but kind of more philosophically geared, less sort of numbers oriented. I was more sort of uh, like, perf- like interested in how people would profess these understandings and how to articulate that kind of knowledge was always really interesting to me mm. when I was young. Um, and uh, I, re- I read a lot um, starting at like nine years old. I was lots of fiction. I loved kind of world building in my head and coming up with ideas for stories. And um, I was always, I was often drawing things to like designs for shoes for skateboarding. Cause I thought skateboard shoes could be designed better. So I would like draw some skateboard shoes. I would design portable video gaming devices. A lot of, which I will say some of them like, I, like five or 10 years later, that's how they were making them. So I, 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 feel, <laughs> I was like, I was ahead of the curve as like a, as like a 12 year old, like right drawing these things. And then like, um, and yeah, always just in like design, how people thought, how it it's kind of feels like a big swirl in my head at that age. Sure. But what about the musical side of things? Yeah. Okay. There's that too. Um, I, I, my grandpa played guitar and I grew up, my cousin Adrian played guitar and my mom said, Hey, I think you should try an instrument. Um, you can stop after two months, but I think you should just try. I said, okay. And she didn't do that with very many things. She was really like letting me choose almost everything I was doing. Uh, and she said, just give it a try. And if you don't like it, you can stop. I said, okay. So I took some guitar lessons and then, uh, I was, you know, I liked it. It was fine. And then kind of when I hit puberty, it started feeling like more of an expressive outlet rather than just like something I did in a class. Um, and, uh, okay. It's interesting story with this. Do you know the film August rush, um, no. with Robin Williams? It's a fantastic film. Anyone, anyone who likes cool kind of, you know, drama, but nice film and also likes <laughs> music should see this film. It's a great film. Okay. Uh, and it's one of Robin Williams, less known pieces. Um, but it's uh, about a, like essentially a child prodigy in music um, that is discovered by Robin Williams' character. But anyway, they were filming this, mu- this, this movie that would end up having a big influence on in how I thought about guitar and writing music. My dad and I were in New York when they were filming it, and we saw Robin Williams from like, the other side of Central Park. And the only reason we went to see the film was because we were going to go see if we were in the background of one of the shots uh, <laughs> in, in Central Park. And then we were not, but the, but the movie totally changed how I, how I was playing guitar, and, and I started... <laughs> detuning my guitar and like slapping it and doing trying to figure out what finger style was it's kind of teaching myself what this was and that from there sort of exploded into my 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 teens and my my young adult life of like using music as a way to explore and create and uh, process emotions and to share those emotions with people and then at camp I discovered people singing together and how special that was to like that just had a huge actually impact on me how special it is to have everyone gathered around uh, a kind of an idea and to sing about that idea and about that feeling, do it together, was had a big impact on me too. And yeah. then I wanted 
do even more music and well, let's yeah. let's dwell <laughs> on not back to school camp here this is something that listeners have heard me mention over and over again and a few years ago, I even did a, a podcast with Grace Llewellyn about not back to school camp. But for you, as a 15-year-old unschooler who didn't know any other unschoolers uh, and then decided to go to this summer camp out in Oregon, uh, what was that like for you? What changed? That It was the first time I ever left home for a long time. That was one thing. And, I, and my mom put me on a train across the whole country to, to go out there um at 15 so there's that initial experience of going out on your own to discover something um that is just a big you know big life experience um and there were some other unschoolers that i met on the train that were really nice and kind of kept an eye on me and stuff um and for me it was really just the confirmation that this was a community that existed these they were successful adults that had done this, the the various any kind of doubt I might have had in my head started to fade away about whether or not this would work. I was really contemplating going to high school at this time, and uh, because I, I wanted, I think a sense just a sense of community as a teenager. You're looking for your people. You're looking for people to get to gather with you and to connect with. And I found that not going to school started to feel like. Uh, it was, it was getting harder to be like a, a normal part of those people's lives that I was with. And I always felt different, right? So I stopped feeling different. I started feeling like it was a special community. Uh, and I saw that it was not just a, a good community that gathered around this philosophy of unschooling, which is great and very affirming, but also a community of people that were generally aware about social issues and uh, kind of the ways in which we could try to make the culture and the world of the United States a little bit better in general. Um, and so everything from workshops on consent and talking openly about sexuality and understanding what does health really mean and all these other questions that seem to be in the kind of spinning in the the, the vortex of the the collective consciousness of the that part of the unschooling community was was really affirming and i was like okay this is great i found my people i i know i'm going to be all right um and for me it was a really affirming moment and and changed my trajectory probably of the rest of my teenage years is that all? Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it just changed it, your total trajectory. It, it, is that all? I, yeah. I, I think I think you know I would have been the same person, right? But I, I I probably would have sought out that sense of community elsewhere, and I don't I don't know where I would have found it, right? But um, I, it definitely I, I I didn't feel like I had to keep looking for it uh, in a way that maybe would change how I identified as myself, right? I could I got to stay this sort of you know, this guy who never went to school, I didn't have to become that, the person who did what everyone else did to, to find my community, right? Mm. Um, and that, that was, a, I think that's, in a nutshell, maybe the most, the most profound part of that. So, so let's focus now on age 15, Joel, to age 22, Joel. And I bet a lot of parents wonder, how did this guy who sounds like a pretty normal uh, unschooler end up at the Harvard of uh, circus <laughs> in Montreal. And uh, in this whole period of, of late adolescence, early adulthood, I think is a real question mark for a lot of people. Just, mm -hmm. especially you as someone who decided not to go through traditional four-year college, um, how did you, you spend your time during this period? How did you continue developing skills? How did, how did your, your self-conception develop? Oh, those are good, really good questions. Um, well, if we start from the camp standpoint, just because that, that sense of finding a community was really important for me. Um, I think from there, it, it I was inspired a lot by seeing all of the amazing things that these other unschoolers were doing with their time, like writing books and, uh, you know, planning these amazing travel adventures and, or studying a subject and being really, really good at it, and or just people doing things too because they thought it was fun and not trying to be the best at it, but just doing it because they enjoyed it and it was doing something for them. It, that that had an impression on me, um, and I think um, a big part of what kind of, as far as my unschooling focus went, 
And I think the thing that I had the hardest time with also, I think it's, it's important to note that, that unschooling is, is challenging in its own ways, in ways that I think um, I will adjust differently with my own children because I've had the experience of going through it. If, if my, whether or not my kids go to school or not, I think the unschooling philosophy is something I, I will try to instill in them. Um, and, and that is for me, I, I'm someone who, who has had a hard time learning to self-organize. I'm, I'm highly motivated. I'm highly kind of creative mind but I'm, I have a hard time organizing myself and like creating a calendar, it, I, something that's is not natural for me. And I think the amount of freedom that came with unschooling into my teenage years uh, was both an incredible resource because it gave me lots of time to, to, to think and to analyze the way the world worked um, and try a lot of different things. Um, but it also, made it hard for me to take some things from start to finish because I would have a billion ideas for things I wanted to do. And I, I wasn't mature enough actually probably at 15 to know how to self-organize to get those things done. And I think sometimes that's what the structure of, of a traditional school or even you know, another form of schooling can, can, can provide to some kids is that sense of structure that some of us are going to benefit from. I, I think that's the whole, the whole key point of unschooling is that you, everyone is going to have a different experience with it. So between 15 and 18, I think I, I, I did a lot of continuing to, you know, have deep relationships and friendships and grow those friendships with the people I met at camp. Cause I felt like we understood each other the best. Um, I continued to grow as a musician. Uh, I became certified as a parkour instructor and was teaching parkour uh, in Indiana. Uh, I took lessons in singing and, uh, started to sing more in my music, musical work. Um, as I got a little older, kind of my late teens, I took courses in uh, business and basic, uh, like, you know, college level algebra and things like this. Uh, did some writing workshops at a school camp. Um, but it was really like, a, it was really like a, a big sort of mix up of lots of different things that were like at times very unstructured, at times very structured. And I think looking back at that, I, I wish I had had more insight into how to structure ideas I had. I, I had ideas for businesses I could start, but I didn't start them because I, I didn't have that natural inclination to understand how to get myself that organized around my idea or to take something that was rather abstract in my head and make it concrete in the real world. Um, so looking back on that sort of 15 to 18 period, I think that was the the thing I could have used the, the most sort of assistance with that I didn't, and my parents too, they were learning about this one school thing too, right? Like they'd never done this before. Mm. That's something I, I would have maybe benefited from having a little more of, uh, the sense of structure and how to take an idea and make it concrete. Mm. And then as I got a little older, I, I was able to start working at the Not Back to School camp during the summers. That made a, had a big impact on me to start being of service to a community that had helped me out a lot. Um, I worked in a bunch of different places between the age of 15 and, and, eight, and like 15 and what, 22 before I came to Montreal. And I had seen a lot of different life experiences. And I think that's also something that was hugely impactful on my unschooling experience and on my experience as a human being is working in lots of different environments um, from, you know, working at the back to school camp, working in at, as a gymnastics instructor, parkour instructor, um, working on farms. I worked a job where like, the, sometimes the, the managers of the shifts would like be drunk on their shift and there's people who are like really don't have a lot of money who are trying to do this this this, this particular service job I was doing and you, you learn too like life is really not easy for a lot of people mm. uh, and and that was a big thing too I worked as a caregiver for the elderly uh, through my mom's business um, and anyway that kind of plethora of, of experience and also understanding like how hard you can work to earn just a little bit of money is mm. That was a formative as well and very important lesson that I think uh, relatively often, even amongst the, a lot of my other peers, I, I think is not as widely understood that visceral feeling of like, I can work my, my butt off for 12 hours, uh, you know, many, many times and not really have quite enough or have, you know, not, not get that much from it. Think, mm. And one of those that, experiences, that a, as you mentioned earlier, was working for Unschool Adventures, working with me and Dev and the other staff on the 10-week adventure yeah. semester, in which you were the, the head cook and you, you organized meals. Uh, you, you taught teenagers how to prepare food and, and clean up. And 
it seems like you've had a real diversity of work experiences. Just, just the fact yeah. that you, I, I believe you just had experience in the Not Back to School Camp kitchen prior to, to taking this 10 week position. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I did. And you, you were, you were, uh, you know, graceful enough to give me a chance that something that was not my, not yet my specialty, right. But you thought I had some, some potential to do well. And I'm really grateful for that. And yeah, that, that experience was great because it was a lot of hard work, but a lot of intrinsic value. Um, and you know, it was much more about how do you, how do you, um, how do you lead by example to a group of, of teams, uh, how you work together, how you make decisions together, how you budget for, um, for you know, purchasing everybody's food, basically something that's pretty important to everybody. Um, how do you get creative inside of like relatively, um, uh, relatively tight constraints, as far as like you know, we're, we're working with like propane stoves, and uh, you know, we don't have running water, you know, on the on the off the grid place we were at, and all those things became blessings and things we love to work with. And like, you know, you're suddenly you're, roast, you're roasting a chicken in a solar oven uh, with a bunch of teenagers. And like, <laughs> uh, it was great. Yeah. And, I, I think everything may be considered a blessing except for the rodents. I think that's oh my God. one thing no, in the, which the, I, I struggled the, to see the blessing. I, me too. I mean, the blessing was that we got to be outside and it yes. was off the grid and that's cool. And, but there just happens to be uh, scorpions and <laughs> and and like a pack rat, which is a literal animal that is not. I thought that was just a thing we said. Those are real creatures, pack rats. They will steal everything you leave outside, and make nests out of them, <laughs> and you have to you... chase them out of your outdoor kitchen and keep it clean. Like <laughs> nothing yeah. is precious to the pack rat. Um, nothing is, or or everything is precious. To the pack you're right. Rat. You're right. Which one. <laughs> um, all right. Um, so let's let's close the loop here. Um, yeah, you had all these these different experiences, work experiences, community experiences, uh, developing your personal interests, um, and and how did this lead you to the decision that you wanted to pursue a serious career in contemporary circus arts? Well, I no matter what I did from the moment I stopped teaching parkour uh, really regularly um, at the age of like nineteen or so. Uh, no matter what I did, I was just craving more movement. And if I wasn't engaging my body in what I was doing, I didn't feel f quite fulfilled. I couldn't, I couldn't describe why, like I, everything intrinsically about what I was doing felt great, but I, <laughs> it's sort of like, if I'm, if I'm kind of like sitting, standing and moving my arms and that's like, the, even if I'm, or even if I go jogging and stuff, I just don't feel like I'm fully alive. I, I need to like be exploring the end range of all of my movements, all of my psychological capacity and my ability to sort of stretch my, my physical capacity along with my mental capacity. And I just didn't, I just felt that feeling viscerally inside of me. And I knew I was interested in everything from, uh, you know, maybe going to school for architecture or for economics um, or pursuing music. I thought about before I went to Montreal, I thought about maybe moving to LA to pursue uh, music. Um, and there, but I, I just felt like I had to put things in, in, in terms of timeliness. And maybe this is something that's important for, for all people, but maybe especially uh, people who are, you know, in their kind of late teens, early 20s. Um, is it, I think it's important to ask yourself, if you have a lot of ideas for things you want to do, what is most timely? And I, I realized if I, if I wanted to do this career that really pushed my body to its limits, and pursue that I had to do it right now because my body wouldn't do the same stuff at 50 years old as it does it you know between 20 and 35 you know and it I could I could go back to school for economic theory or for for anything like it you know later but this thing I this thing had to happen right now um, and for me as someone who's often overwhelmed with the number of things they want to do and uh, the number of ideas swirling in their head that was really helpful to, to ground it in something that uh, is unchanging, which is that uh, you're, you're growing older um, and that time is precious. Mm. And, um, and also just like listen to your intuition and don't overthink stuff. Like if you, if something in you is saying, yes, this is something that you are so inspired by, you have to go do it. You just have to listen uh, and then have faith that each step forward in that is, is, is gonna bring you where you wanna go. Mm. You know, unless you're unless you like become unhappy or something, of course. And like, okay, ask yourself why. But you know, your your fear, like I like how Seth Godin talks about, like you know, your, you have your comfort zone kind of, and you have your, um, you know, your, your idea of your comfort zone is not necessarily existing in the same part of the Venn diagram as what's going to help you grow. And 
if you're feeling a little bit afraid, you're feeling a little bit anxious, that might be a good sign actually that you're stepping into something that's going to help you grow. Mm-hmm. Now, if you feel like sad and you feel frustrated or scared <laughs> because you're in danger, that's, those are different things, right? Yeah. But yeah. If, you're, if you're edging up against your, lo- your own discomfort, that's a, that's a good sign. Even if that discomfort is embarrassment or the desire to sort of back away and think about, oh, maybe this isn't going to work. I'm going to try this audition. Everyone's going to be better than me at the school. And then I'm going to have wasted these four months. Or I can make up any story in my mind about why I shouldn't do something. But none of that's really true but, until you go and experience it yourself. So to participate in the National Circus School of Montreal, you had to learn French. Was that part of the, the, the package deal? So Quebec, especially Montreal, is very bilingual, although it is primarily French. Um, and so, yes, you do have to learn French to go through the academic courses. Um, you can survive here speaking English. But uh, I think that it's a real shame not to learn French. So many people, pretty, pretty much everyone speaks French here. And uh, if you can communicate in French with people, you're going to make, you're going to be like closer with the people you meet and you're going to open up more opportunities for yourself and you're going to understand the world around you better. Um, Did so, you have any French under your belt before zero. you thought about this? Zero. Zero. Zero French. All no, right. Nothing. Absolutely tell, nothing. Tell us about this journey, Joel. So uh, you arrive and like they'll do part in English, part in French, and then sometimes they'll have a, you know, if they're doing, they're doing the orientation, they might have a Spanish speaking person there too to help some of the, the, the Spanish-speaking people, um, but usually it's primarily English, French. They kind of do everything bilingually, you know, as you're first arriving. And then by the time you're in your second year at school, they pretty much expect you to be able to at least understand what's being told to you in French, even if you don't know how to respond very well. Um, and then occasionally ask for clarification. And, um, so yeah, you there was a, a huge feeling of, I'd never felt so stupid in my life. I've never felt so just like unequipped, <laughs> no matter, um, how much I studied it or uh, there's just a level of, you know, getting kind of hit in the face with um, the level of training. Everything's in another language. You don't really understand what's going on around you. You're kind of like following along a little bit like a sheep to try to make sure you're in the right place at the right time, <laughs> like understanding the majority around you. Um, and so the first year is really like this. Your, your brain is just fried from all the training and your brain is fried from not understanding what's being said to you. And you're trying so hard. all like, You're just like, your brain is on maximum, like, <laughs> like neurological activity all the time. Um, and so, and I actually almost failed my French course and I never, like every class I'd taken, that was more of a formalized education thing. Like I'd done pretty well in and gotten A's and stuff. So this was like a kind of a, a thing to my ego too, where I had to remind myself like, okay, the reason that you're not doing well in this course is because uh, the way that I was going to learn French, I realized was not through an academic source. I was going to learn it by speaking it with people and having practical use of it. That was the way my brain was going to do it. So I had to just accept that. And, and so I started teaching children on the weekends and teaching in French, um, forcing myself to speak in French, even when the Francophones would switch to English with me to like keep myself practicing. And after about, after two years, two and a half years, I was pretty fluent. Um, and then during the pandemic, I lived with my girlfriend who's from here and her parents and that really sort of set it in stone again. Uh, but it's been I one always of the most advise people who want a real immersion experience. It's like get into a relationship with someone who speaks. Yeah, you, you might learn how to, how to read and write and maybe listen a bit too, to another language. Uh, you know, if you're reading books and watching TV and stuff, but uh, you're not going to really know another language until you live somewhere where people are speaking it all the time. Hmm. And, yeah. So it's been incredibly rewarding. I, I think if you ever have the chance, it totally made me rethink my understanding of English. I understand, I understand my own language much better now. Um, I've never been so challenged mentally either to like, to, it's this, you know, language is this mix of like having logical drawing logical conclusions and then also allowing things to be entirely illogical and sort of letting both of those things exist at the same time because that's how languages are like um but yeah incredibly rewarding experience like highly highly recommend it if you ever get the chance very very life-changing to wrap up joel uh how do you perceive of your career moving forward how do you think of the next you know five years give or take um yeah play with that one yeah. Um, 
Well, I, I really want to keep pushing this this contemporary circus thing. I think we're starting to see a lot more opportunities um, opening up now with the, the pandemic winding down and people are able to gather a bit more, especially in North America. Things are going pretty well. And in Canada, like we had, what, 70 new cases in Quebec yesterday or something? Like we're doing very, very well here. We have the highest rate of uh, vaccinations in the whole world, I think, in Canada. Um, mm. So we're doing good here. Um, and I have... Uh, the potential to work with one of the larger companies, uh, we'll see how that turns out, but I've been invited to do some research with them and uh, it went well. And uh, we're talking kind of sonography and rigging stuff now. And uh, that, if that works, that would we would go into another creation period in September and then we might start touring in 2020. My hope is to do that alongside uh, La Quadrature, our personal project, so that we're able to sort of tour both at the same time. Uh, for both, both because I love that project, I don't want to abandon that project with those with those good friends. We've worked really hard on what we've made, um, but also because, just financially speaking, the even the big companies are not able to do full like two or three hundred shows a year tours right now because some of the markets are not open yet. Uh, so we're going to have to build kind of a hybrid of probably teaching and uh, performing a bit with this group, performing a bit with this group to sort of make it all work uh, in the in the coming year or two. I bet. Um, and then I, I see myself uh, wanting to push my physical body as as far as I can for as long as I can in a healthy way uh, and performing at a high level um, with as many different people as I can. And then, um, you know, if I can find a way to continue some of my schooling and continue my musical career and things at the same time, that'd be great. And eventually having my own company that's, that's larger and uh, I can apply for grants and things eventually in Quebec too, once I have my permanent residency. Because uh, I'd like to go into directing and to like actually choreographing and doing the sonography and kind of organizing the whole show and making a team of performers. That I find that to be really, really amazing work. So probably want to go in this direction. Um, and I, I, I we'll see. Like I, I could see myself really pursuing circus out to that way and making this my kind of my whole career for the next, you know, 10, 15 years, I could also see, you know, performing for a while and deciding that I want to go more into, uh, go back into studying and, and get a kind of formalized uh, certification and, and could be economics or uh, something of this nature. Because sometimes you need that accreditation to sort of prove to the world that you're, you're someone that can be trusted with this formation because we still, sure. that's kind of a balance as unschoolers. We have to sort of balance the, and you you can make your own path too. You just have to convince the people that you want to work with or that you want to hire you uh, that your alternative version of the experience is 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 worth it. Yes, and that's, uh, that's another thing some is guilds and much more difficult than others. Absolutely, and in some like you know, I don't want my doctor to have not gone to medical school, right? Like, I, <laughs> of course, I you need there's a balance for each career, but I think uh, you know for something that's more entrepreneurial or. Uh, uh, Kind of contract based or things like this, you might be able to uh, create your own program by, you know, who knows, asking other entrepreneurs to do little mentorship programs with you and um, documenting what you're what you're doing in a way that's presentable uh, to potential employers or potential clients. And uh, but anyway, to, I'm going out on a limb. I always tend to do this when I talk, but basically, <laughs> I see myself wanting to pursue this uh, for as as push as far as I can. I want to be either the best in the world at what I do. Um, and uh, I'll take this performance thing as far as I can, as long as I'm, I'm healthy and, and my body's able to do it in a healthy way. And then from there, we'll see if I want to go into creating and directing or if I'd like to kind of change career paths and do something a little different, mm. I think. Yeah. Well, it's uh, an inspiring story, Joel. And uh, yeah, I'm proud to count you as a friend. Uh, keep it up, man. Thank you, Blake. You too. Thank you for thank you so much for you know taking the time to to ask me these questions. I I uh, it's really cathartic to talk about it all. It's actually been a really hard year uh, in the performance art world, and like I've just to kind of put it in context, I think it's important to say this. Like over the last year, I've had to work in grocery stores, deliver food on a bike, and do all kinds of random stuff to just make ends meet during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it, it has not been easy. Uh, we went from thinking that we were going to be, you know, touring the world at this moment and like, you know, you know, you know saving money and uh, kind of flying high to like going back to doing the kind of jobs I was doing when I was 15 or 16, mm. which is nothing wrong with that, right? I'm not above anything, but uh, it was hard to get knocked back to that and 
and when you thought you were about to kind of start flying and all, see all this work pay off. And um, so we're gonna, I, I, we have to turn those those hardships into you know a sense of learning. I think, but I think it's it's good to be clear that it's been this has been the hardest year of my life, for sure. Uh, no no questions asked, uh, and I think it has been for a lot of people. I hope the summer in Montreal makes up for some of that. Absolutely. And I'm really excited for the things to come and it's all going to be worth it. Joel Malkoff, thanks for being on the show. Blake, thank you so much. I hope that my experience as an unschooler can be helpful to some other young unschoolers. And uh, yes, do things your own way, follow your own path and, uh, you know, trust yourself. Thanks, Joel.